Hi there. Thank you for joining me on season three of the Chattering Hour with our special guest, Bill Mosley. We talk about his father's Halloween pranks, how cattle mutilations led to his first film role, how a short film secured him the role of Chop Top in Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, singing with Buckethead and working with Rob Zombie on House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Reject, and much, much more. Up next on The Chattering Hour, Bill Mosley. And we're back with Bill Mosley. Starting out as a journalist in New York, he soon followed his dream of appearing in the movies. He's worked on House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and Three from Hell for Rob Zombie. Tom Savini's 1990s remake of Night of the Living Dead. Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse, and Darren Lynn Balsman's cult classic Repo the Genetic Opera, and many, many more. Let's get to it. Bill, thank you so much for joining me here today. Nice to be here. Good, good. So I'd like to take us back to the very beginning, if I may. So I understand you were born in Stamford, but brought up in Barrington Hills, Illinois? Yes, yes. Stanford, Connecticut, Barrington Hills, Illinois. Right. So what was your childhood like? Uh, my childhood was uh, very rural, which was uh, really helpful um, <laughs> uh, because uh, I'm in the middle of three boys. And so we had a lot of energy and needed to be outside a lot. And those are back in the days when uh, being outside was not uh, frightening to the parents. It, in fact, it was a great relief. And, uh, you know, we would, uh, you know, my, my local friends and I, brothers, would take off on our bikes and my mom would call out, you know, be home by supper. And we'd be gone all day. We'd, uh, we'd be climbing trees. We'd be going to the ponds to look for frog eggs. Uh, you know, we'd just be, uh, you know, playing army and war and doing all the rough and tumble things that, uh, that little boys do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds very much similar to my upbringing. With my mother's attitude was, they'll come back when they're hungry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and somehow miraculously, we didn't get hurt. We didn't get abducted. <laughs> uh, sometimes we would get in trouble with the police. We had uh, we lived uh, a part of the property was up by uh, uh, a the main thoroughfare, meaning the you know the paved road um, right. called West County Line Road, and. Um, we had a uh, fort that uh, overlooked West County Line Road, and in the uh, and we like to throw things at cars because we love to have them screech on their brakes, and then we would take off across the the cornfields and and escape, and it was so much fun. Uh, but in the spring, we would throw uh, crab apples. In the summer, we would throw sticks. In the winter, we would throw snowballs, and uh, all the other times, we'd throw little stones or whatever we had to throw. So that was that was our big thrill in Barrington. Right. Also, it was always uh, it was always exciting when the AMP truck unloaded. That was the local supermarket. Right. No, that, that's a joke, actually. That's, <laughs> that's not completely accurate. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I remember. You see, now you've just reminded me of all the things used to happen. Mike, we had a um, soft drinks company called Corona, mm. and they used to come around with a big lorry, and you just used to be able to go out and buy, you know, spend your pocket money on soft drinks. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was the fun thing. So, so, I, so I grew up. I grew up in a pretty. Uh, I guess it was a pretty normal household. Um, my dad was very much of an outdoorsman. He loved to uh, hunt and fish. So he taught his kids that. He was also a, uh, a famous football player, college football player in his prime. So right. in his day, I should say. So uh, uh, we were very, we were all very athletic. Um, we had a lot of, again, it was a very, you know, very physical upbringing. Um, but I got to say that, uh, you know, Jermaine, uh, to my career choices, um, I, when I was uh, very small, I used to love to sneak down the hall after I'd been put to bed and sneak down the hall of our house to the library where our old uh, black and white Zenith television was. And I would watch uh, midnight horror movies. Fifties, uh, you know, mostly like the beginning of the end, the giant grasshoppers, and you know, the, I, all all of those kinds of movies I would watch uh, by myself, uh, huddled in the in the library with that uh, in front of the black and white zenith, praying that uh, dad and mom wouldn't hear me and come down and bust me. So that was also speaking of uh, you know an adrenaline rush, sneaking into the library to watch uh, horror movies. We had a local, the local horror movie series at midnight on Fridays or Saturdays was called Shock Theater. And uh, that was, you know, that was really one of my early loves. Also, we were a very, um, my dad was pretty strict. I mean, he was a Marine. He'd been in uh, World War II and Korea. Uh, mom was uh, religious. And, uh, and yet uh, somehow, some way, it was a Halloween friendly family. So that when Halloween came around, uh, you know, my parents relaxed their their iron grip, and we all, and we really enjoyed. Uh, you know, my my brothers and I really enjoyed Halloween. My dad especially loved to uh, arrange things. Like he would, uh, um, one night he took us, uh, my brother and, and some friends, to the local cemetery in Barrington, and. Uh, he had pieces of paper and, and uh, crayons or chalk or whatever it was and told us to get out and do uh, grave rubbings on, uh, you know, pick a, a gravestone and do a grave rubbing. And uh, while we were doing that, scared Halloween in the cemetery of the local, you know, local little town cemetery, dad had arranged with the Barrington Police Department to show up in a cruiser and uh, suddenly turn on the siren and flash the red light and bust us. <laughs> so, you know, we were like, you know, 11 and 12 years old. Um, I remember one of my older brother's friends uh, was just uh, so, so terrified by this. He literally leapt the, uh, the cemetery wall, which wasn't, you know, maybe four feet or five feet and ran two miles home. That was, uh, so that's the kind of stuff that dad liked to do. <laughs> so that, that made the Halloween, you know, a friendly place. Uh, so it's, you know, and it has remained that way for, you know, the last, you know, how many, however many years. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember some of the first films that you actually watched? 
I do actually. <clears throat> Nick, the first movie I ever saw was um, it was actually in uh, we were on vacation in Florida, and my folks took us to a drive-in in Florida, and uh, we watched a movie called Kismet, which was an old you know musical. Mm. That was the very first movie I ever saw. Uh, the very first horror movie. I was with my grandmother, my mother's mother, who lived in New York City. I was visiting Granny, and uh, Granny, back in, I guess it was maybe 1956 or 7, uh, took me to the uh, first run, a uh, first run screening of The Blob with Steve McQueen. That just uh, opened, it just scared the hell out of me. And what she did was, I, we then went back to her apartment and I was put in bed in the guest room and the door was open a crack. And I remember the light from the hallway shone into my bedroom and glinted off the, um, uh, the mirror above the, the dresser at the foot of my bed. And for some reason, the light hitting that mirror somehow, some way just scared the crap out of me. So I was, calling for granny. I just remember that was a very uh, frightening experience. Um, and wouldn't you know that uh, many years later, um, I would actually have a cameo in the remake, Chuck Russell's remake of The Blob, which, you know, was the first job I had when I got to Hollywood, actually. Right, right. Yeah. Now, now, but before that, you, I mean, you went to Yale. What did you study at Yale? Uh, I was an English major. Oh. And I, I minored in science. You know, I like to take things like black holes and quasi-stellar phenomenon for the non-scientist. And uh, so I, I took some, some, some courses, which I loved. Um, you know, I certainly love my English and my, my lit, uh, but I, I loved uh, the science for the non-scientist. So we didn't have to know uh, physics, uh, you know, in order to study physics. Um, and... Uh, and that actually helped me because when I graduated, one of the jobs I got when I was uh, working in New York City uh, was a uh, was as a writer for uh, Omni magazine. And Omni was an old science science fiction magazine uh, put out by uh, Bob Guccione, a good old uh, penthouse fame. And uh, and that was that really put me in good stead because I loved science. And I ended up uh, interviewing a, a bunch of different uh, scientists for Omni, so that really helped. Uh, uh, but uh, English major all the way. Right, right. Did you perform whilst you were at school? I did, actually. I was in a couple of plays. Usually I would perform, uh, I would, I would uh, go out for plays that um, rehearsed and performed in the winters. Uh, I wasn't really much of a big uh, spring or fall uh, thespian, but uh, the winters uh, in New Haven were always pretty bleak. Right. Uh, they were very gray, very overcast. Really, the only the only color back then was uh, maybe uh, you know some dog piss in a snowbank. <laughs> that was basically it. The rest of it was gray and black. <clears throat> And old, you know, of course, Yale is an old campus, so everything was, you know, very uh, Dickensian. And um, so uh, I would like to, I, I did go out for plays. And um, one of my faves was I uh, did uh, Guys and Dolls. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. So, so, I mean, I did it kind of to pass time. It was fun. You know, it was up my alley as a performer. So 
Right. Uh, but I was not, a, you know, I was not a theater major. Right, right. So, because you made the switch kind of uh, about 1982, you played a cab driver in Endangered Species, I understand. Yes. So what, 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 how come the switch from the, the journalism to the acting? Well, I always wanted to be an actor. Um, I always wanted to be in the movies. I mean, that to me was very exciting. Uh, but, you know, uh, coming from the Midwest and from uh, my parents' practical mindsets, um, somehow I got it in my head that that was not a legitimate uh, 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 career and that uh, I needed to do something that was practical and uh, that was uh, uh, made money uh, and, and supported me. So that was that was out. And I, I, it, I, uh, I still loved it. I, uh, you know, dabbled. I was always attracted. Uh, but I, I again, I was convinced that it was not going to. Uh, be a living. And uh, <clears throat> I think it was it was it was 82 or wh whenever it was. <clears throat> pardon me. I um, um, was uh, at the time I was working as the editor, the editor in chief of um, I was working as the editor in chief of um, CB Bible magazine. And that was about uh, citizens band radio. There was a big craze back then with uh, you know, C.W. McCall, you know, whatever that was, uh, all that stuff. So it was the CB craze in America. And, um, and I was the editor-in-chief of CB Bible magazine, not Bible as in every small b, everything you wanted to know about. Right, right. Um, and uh, I, uh, as, as the editor-in-chief of CB Bible, one of my editorial crusades was about mysterious cattle mutilations um, that, were, that were plaguing the Western United States, especially during right around uh, the, um, uh, the bicentennial. So right, you know, mid seventies, there were a bunch of different US states mostly Western states, um, especially Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, uh, that had, uh, that were cattle states that were getting these mysterious cattle mutilations uh, where uh, there might be, uh, uh, you know, a, a farmer comes out, a rancher comes out, there's a dead cow. The cow has, has been uh, mutilated, meaning like uh, maybe, uh, some organs have been removed, the, the tongue, the udders, uh, you know, the anus was bored out, the blood was drained, all these mysterious things, which you don't think the, that a wrestler, a wrestler would actually, nothing, nothing valuable there. Um, also, uh, it was mysterious because, you know, certainly you can't drain the blood of a cow, even if you, you know, held it upside down, mm. uh, still about a third of the blood would remain in the, uh, in the veins. But these these were like pumped dry, um, and also they were they were still supple. There was no rigor mortis. Some of the organs that remained in the body had completely disintegrated, and this was overnight. Um, and a lot of times there were tracks of predators that would normally feast on a dead cow, that that circled the the the, the uh, you know the bodies, but never came within uh, say thirty to fifty feet of the actual corpse. And, uh, and so I was totally into it. I, I just thought, what is going on here? And a lot of people also reported, you know, strange blinking lights. So the idea with this was the night surgeons, um, 
you know, that was uh, Thule Kupferberg of the old uh, Fugs group wrote a, uh, you know, he wrote, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Ed Sanders um, wrote a series for Wee Magazine called, you know, The Invasion of the Night Surgeons. And I just, you know, boy, hearing night surgeons, I got totally into it. And uh, so I set up a, a, a whole network of stringers um, in, in, in small town papers in Colorado, et cetera. And they would clip articles about mutilated cows and send them to me in my nerve center in New York City and uh, at CB Bible headquarters. And so I was totally into, to, and in fact, my CB handle was Mute Man and uh, totally into it. And one day I was reading the New York Post and I, I loved uh, especially reading uh, page six, that's kind of the gossip page, the New York Post you know, good old Rupert Murdoch. And, uh, and uh, there was an article, a small a bit about um, a, a new movie was about to be shot called Cows. It was gonna be directed by uh, Alan Rudolph, you know, who was a very famous art direct, you know, art, artistic, you know, film director. Uh, Choose Me was one of them. I mean, he, you know, he did a lot of really great stuff. Um, and now he's doing a movie called Cows. And it, it did mention the production company. So I called him up because this was a, a, a mutilation movie. But I called up and I got a hold of the, the producer, Carolyn Pfeiffer. And, uh, I, and I said, yes, hi, I'm Bill Mosley. I, you know, I'm the editor of CB Bible Magazine. And I have pictures of mutilated cows because part of my stringers would send me these eight by 10 black and white news shots of cattle mutilations from their districts. And uh, some of them were pretty bizarre. I mean, really just kind of scary looking. And, um, and I said, I had these pictures of mutilated cows. And she said, well, um, we, we would love to get some of those because we're, we have a scene where there's like a, you know, a town hall meeting in this little town. And, you know, we want to have, you know, pictures of mutilations that, that they can be passed around. So, and she said, but of course, you know, like a good producer, she said, uh, but we can't pay very much. And, uh, and I said, well, you know what? I, I don't really care about the pay so much. I uh, would like to get my, uh, my SAG card. So is there a way if I can get into your movie and uh, get into the Screen Actors Guild, I would consider that pay enough. And she said, well, I think we can do something about that. So God bless Carolyn Pfeiffer. That's how I got into the Screen Actors Guild. I rode on the back of a mutilated cow. And, um, and I actually, when they shot it, it actually, the, 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 the final title when it was released is Endangered Species. And uh, it stars um, Robert Urich and Joe Beth Williams. And at the very beginning of it, um, of the movie, there is a, you know, it's a scene in New York because Robert Urich is a New York cop and he flags a cab and, and I pull up in the cab and, and Robert Urich jumps in the car and I say, uh, where to? And he says something like, you know, I don't know, third and, you know, 42nd. And uh, so I get him there and he, and I, and then my next line is, uh, that'll be 475. And he hands me a five and says, keep the change. And I say, thanks a lot, bud, you know, and out he gets. So. I showed up, I, I did my job. Um, I was very excited about it. I was so excited, in fact, that I went to my editor at Omni and I said, I'd love to cover this movie because this is, you know, it's cattle mutilations, I'm in this, uh, you know, wouldn't that be great? 
And so she said yes, because I was doing arts columns for Omni as well as interviews. So I covered the movie, The Making Of, and, uh, and, uh, and I was invited to uh, the premiere in New York City. And I remember taking my, my, uh, two of my best friends and I was very excited. This is gonna be my screen debut. And at the very beginning, even if it was you know, three seconds, and at the very beginning, here's New York City and there's Robert Urich and he flags a cab and the cab shows up and he, and Robert Urich uh, gets in and then this voice that isn't mine, like a Brooklyn accent, like, hey, where to, bud? And I'm going like, what the fuck? And I, you know, I, I, look, I look to my left and right to my buddy sitting with me like, whoa, what, you know, what happened there? And then, uh, you know, the cab, and then I'm thinking, well, maybe they'll keep my real, uh, real voice for the, the end of the scene. So the guy, so of course, they're not going to do that. So Robert Urich, you know, does give the guy a $5 bill and it gives me, and then this voice says, you know, thanks, bud, you know, whatever. And uh, that was my first disappointment <laughs> in showbiz. You know, it just shows you that showbiz can, can give and can take away. So yeah. Uh, but that that is how I got into the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience. I remember getting a phone call from a producer. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly how that feels. Yes, and they and they explained that well, you were in New York, and we have to do ADR, and you know we didn't want to fly you all the way to Los Angeles. You know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was it was heartbreaking, but it was it was thrilling and and horrible at the same time. So God bless those mutilated cows. Yeah, but I mean, even from that, I mean, it was fairly soon thereafter you got to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 uh, with Toby Hooper. How, so how did that come about? Uh, I was actually working on a, a ranch. I took a summer off from New York City and I was working on a, a, a kind of a working dude ranch in uh, Coro, Wyoming. And uh, I was just a rosin jaw, which is a nice way of saying basically a ranch hand. And, uh, you know, I would, you know, dig irrigation ditches and, you know, throw bales of hay and shoe horses. I mean, basically you're, you know, you're low rung guy on a, on a working ranch. And um, the person, that, the, the kid that worked with me was a 15 year old um, who, uh, his, let's see, he came from uh, Geneseo, Illinois. His name was John Wright. His parents, he was adopted. His parents were uh, in the undertaking business in Geneseo. And they had sent him out to uh, work on a ranch and, you know, be a manly man, you know, at 15 for the summer. And, and so my boss stuck John with me. And so whenever a, a hole needed digging. It was me and John, so we spent a lot of time together. And John was a uh, was a sugar freak, and uh, you know, in the morning he would uh, eat the frosted flakes, and he would at noon he would drink the bug juice and have the fudge sickles, and was constantly pounding the sugar. And under the hot Wyoming summer sun, he would go into what I call sugar deliriums. So we're working side by side, and he was just blathering out. Um, top 40 songs, uh, uh, cartoon characters, uh, all kinds of different voices, uh, just this, again, sugar delirium. Uh, you know, he would just, you know, blather and babble. And, uh, and I, uh, 
I knew I couldn't hit him with a shovel. That was not, you know, part of the deal. So I had to kind of, so I, I would basically turn a deaf ear and just, you know, shovel away or whatever I was doing. And he would be blathering away. And one day, um, just a day like any other, uh, we were working and he was blathering and, uh, you know, he was going like, ah, Captain Crunch, Captain Crunch, you know, whatever his crazy thing was. And then all of a sudden he said, Texas Chainsaw Manicure. And then he blathered back on about Captain Crunch and whatever he was doing. But I heard it. It went into my head and it just was like, what? Texas Chainsaw Manicure. And I went back uh, to the bunkhouse and I got out my notebook and I wrote out a five minute scenario about a woman who goes to a beauty parlor, <clears throat> gets her hair done sitting under the dryer, beautician comes up, anything more you want. And you know, the lady looks at her fingernails, I think I'll have a manicure. And the beautician calls back manicure and you hear this chainsaw roaring to life and that sliding steel door and out comes Leatherface with a chainsaw to you know, give this woman a manicure. So that was the idea that I had in my head. Um, after my summer on the ranch, I returned to New York. I gathered some friends. Um, we ended up, uh, I think, you know, somehow scraped together about 900 bucks and uh, managed to take over for, uh, for an afternoon for a Sunday, uh, Sonia's Hair Fashions on Staten Island. And uh, we gathered some, you know, my, the director was a great friend of mine, Lori Frank, and she, she got her one of her bank tellers. I mean, we gathered all kinds of crazy people. I was a big night bird, so I knew all the clubs and the bouncers. And so I ended up uh, uh, casting Leatherface, uh, was one of the, was a, a Navy power lifter who um, was a bouncer at one of my favorite, <laughs> my favorite uh, night spots. And, uh, and so we ended up uh, shooting the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. And uh, the actual, the, the, uh, the cinematographer was a, was a now famous DP named Ed Lockman. Uh, so we had a, you know, we had a, it was a great, very eclectic, but wonderfully focused bunch. And um, so we shot the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. I gave myself a, uh, <clears throat> a cameo as, um, the hitchhiker, the Ed Neal character from uh, the original Texas Chainsaw, which had completely freaked me out, by the way. So this is what was really motivating this whole effort uh, was just how completely mind-blowing it was to watch the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this was a, this was a kind of a way to kind of expiate, <laughs> you know, whatever was really freaking me out about it. Um, and so, Anyway, out came this five-minute uh, chainsaw manicure. Uh, I remember Lori and I trying to sell it to Saturday Night Live. There was also a comedy show at the time called Fridays. You know, they didn't want it. It, it was it was on video, not on film. It didn't have our stars in it. It was too long. You know, whatever. So I ended up, uh, you know, uh, getting a job as a waiter just to try to pay off the money that. Um, we'd spent, we were pretty elaborate um, doing the, uh, the editing. And we did that at Broadway Video, which was Saturday Night Live's production company. And we were kind of lured in, like, come on in, we'll, we'll do it, it's such a cool project. But you know, at the end, they presented us with quite a big bill. And I didn't have the money. And I was uh, the producer of the Chainsaw Manicure. And I learned 
producers are the ones who get stuck with <laughs> the bills. So I ended up, you know, you know, kind of to uh, just, you know, work off my my penance. I, I uh, was a waiter. I was, you know, doing anything that I could to uh, to pay off this, this bill. And at, at one point during the course of that, um, I got a call from my editor at Omni um, inviting me to take a nice junket to uh, Los Angeles uh, for, on, on Omni's, on, on actually MGM's dime to uh, cover the making of 2010, the, the Space Odyssey sequel. Yes. So I got, you know, I was, it's my junket. So I got flown out to um, Los Angeles and, um, you know, was invited to the set, watched them shooting, you know, took notes and everything. And, uh, but I also had a friend from, uh, from uh, uh, high school uh, who was already, he and his partner had already written Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So they were already, you know, big, hot, young screenwriters and uh, with a big success uh, or two, actually they did Doc Hollywood as well. And uh, my, my buddy Pete, and uh, so he invited, he and his wife invited me out to dinner when I was in LA. And I had brought along a VHS copy of the Chainsaw Manicure uh, just to, I don't know, for shits and giggles. I don't really know what I was doing with it, but I, I brought it along to show them uh, after dinner. And so, you know, after dinner, we put it into the player and we watched the Chainsaw Manicure. And Pete, uh, my buddy Pete said, oh my God, I love this. Um, my, my partner and I have an office right across the hall at Paramount from Toby Hooper, uh, who was there doing Poltergeist with, with uh, uh, you know, and so he said, why don't you give me this copy and I'll walk it across the hall and, and show it to Toby. And I thought, oh, that's, that would be a great, uh, you know, I had no kind of ambition behind it, but I thought that would be really fun if, you know, Toby Hooper, oh my God, you know, watched this Chainsaw Manicure. And uh, my buddy also got Toby's home number from, I guess, from a, a secretary across the hall, which apparently was also, you know, top, top secret stuff. And, uh, and he told me, uh, he, my buddy Pete told me to um, uh, call Toby and, you know, give it a 10 days, two weeks. So I went back to New York, you know, wrote up my story and whatever. And, um, and at two weeks went by, I, I called up the number that Pete had given me. And uh, I later found out it was a real miracle. Toby Hooper answered his own phone. Usually he did not, went right to message. And um, he goes, hello. And I said, uh, yes, hi, Toby. Uh, it's it's uh, me, Bill Mosley. He goes, who? I said, oh, I'm, I'm the guy that did the, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. He goes, oh, hell yeah, I love the manicure, Bill. Uh, I went, oh, great. And he goes, yeah, now who, who was the one that played the hitchhiker? And I said, well, that was me. And he said, well, hell, I loved it. You know, and he said, if I ever do a sequel, I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> and I went, oh, all right. He said, so stay in touch. I went, okay, you know, and hung up the phone. You know, my head was just swelled. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, I sent him a postcard. That was back in 1984. I sent Toby a postcard and, uh, and never really heard another word. So I figured, okay, well, you know, it was fun while it lasted, but that was, that's basically it. And uh, two years went by, 1986, it was uh, maybe Feb, 
you know, maybe February of 86. And uh, I had come in, I was in New York City, and I had come in from a, uh, a failed audition for an NYU student film, New York University. And, um, and it, was, it was especially humiliating because it was for the part of a dead body. <laughs> so, because um, I was I was a cigarette smoker and um, and the the audition uh, was uh, at up uh, on the third floor of a, a four story walk up down in uh, down in the village in New York and so by the time I by the time I got up the stairs I was you know <sighs> and they said okay just lie down and you know play dead. So I, I lay down and then of course my chest is heaving. So, you know, that they <laughs> I didn't get the job. So I get I get home and you know, I'm back in my apartment in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'm kind of, you know, I'm I'm you know down and the phone rings and I pick it up. And I could tell back then, you know, we actually had a handset and uh, you could tell if it was long distance because there was a kind of a sizzle. And, you know, and I and I I said hello and he heard this sizzle and he said, Yes, hi, is this Bill Mosley? Yeah. Uh, well, hi. This is uh, this is Kit Carson, and I went, wow, because I I had been reading you know that page six of those gossip columns, and I knew that Kit was a Hollywood screenwriter married to Karen Black. I think they had a kid. You know, somehow I knew who that was, and um, I said, yeah, and he said. Uh, uh, I just wanted to get an address so that I could send you a copy of. Uh, uh, the script for Texas Chainsaw 2. And then that's when I went, who is this really? You know, I thought I was being goofed on. He said, no, it really is Kit Carson. And, uh, you know, and I, just the sizzle and somehow it just, it was so specific that I, I figured it wasn't really a goof after all. And, um, and so um, what I ended up doing was uh, giving him my address. Uh, those are back in the days when you had to send stuff in the mail. And, um, and so, uh, I got a couple of days later, I got this script and uh, I read it. It was hilarious. I think he told me to look at the part of Chop Top or maybe it was even Platehead back then. But I think there was some conflict with the Masters of the Universe character. So it was Chop Top ultimately. And, uh, <clears throat> and I thought, geez, that's a big part. And it's really a, a hilarious script. And so I called Kit back and I told him that. I said, oh, this is great. I love it. And he goes, really? And he, you know, of course, all screenwriters, you know, please, I hope you love it. And I did. And uh, he said, well, we'll be in touch and hung up the phone. And so I went, you know, like, oh, okay. And uh, the next call I got was from uh, the Canon Films Legal Department. And they said, um, uh, they, they said, uh, uh, do you have an agent or do you want to negotiate your own contract? And I was like, what? And I said, uh, well, let me get back to you. That's something I've learned. Let me get back to you. And, um, and I had met a, uh, an agent uh, from William Morris at a Christmas party a couple months earlier. And, um, and so I called her up at William Morris and I, got through and I said, look, I, I've got this, would you negotiate a contract for me? And of course for an agent, it's free money. She said, sure. So gave her the particulars and hung up the phone. She called Canon and um, she called me back and she said, well, I've uh, got some, some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, <laughs> what's the good news? She said, well, they want you to play this character Chop Top. 
I went, really? Wow, that's pretty awesome. I said, well, what's, what's the bad news? Well, um, they're only going to pay you scale. And I said, well, how much is that? Now, keep in mind, as a, as a freelance writer, I was probably averaging maybe $300 a week in New York City. Fortunately, I had a very, the apartment I was in, we had very low rent. So that's why, that's why I was able to survive in New York. Um, but I probably 350, I would say, max average money per week. So I said, well, how much is scale? It didn't sound good. And she said, well, um, I think it's like 1700 a week. And I went, well, I think I can handle that. And she said, yeah, well, there's something else. And I went, oh, okay, what? She said, well, because this part has a lot of prosthetics and they, they want you to shave your head. I went, okay. And she said, well, I told them that, you know, you're a working actor and that uh, you're going to lose a lot of work. So they've agreed to pay you $5,000 to shave your head. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's the bad news. <laughs> so I was just, I laughed and, um, you know, that's how I got the part. I know it's a long-winded. <laughs> no, it's a fascinating story. I'd, I'd not heard this at all. So, I mean, were you, I have to, your performance is amazing. Um, and kind of reminds me of somebody who might actually be on a sugar high. It's a bad tip of the plate to John Wright. Yeah. Did, um, were you tra uh, trained at that time? Were you going to classes or as an actor? I wasn't really. No. I mean, I had, you know, again, I had, I had you know, acted in school. Um, I hadn't really had any uh, formal training. Um, I had been in uh, a couple of movies, uh, you know, certainly Endangered Species. I, I did a, uh, a female road warrior movie uh, that was, you know, and, and the production was based at a, a club med in uh, Baja, California, in Guaymas, Mexico. And the movie is called Osa, starring Kelly Lynch as the female road warrior. Um, I played uh, Quilt Face, one of the bad guys because she had, when, as a child, I had tried to, I don't know, molest her somehow, some way, and she had hit me in the face with a, with a hot barbecue grill. So I had, uh, you know, that was quilt face. Uh, but I had no real, you know, and I, so I learned, I learned movie acting. I learned on quilt face, actually on, on OSA, I learned uh, that you don't stop until the director says stop. And, and I just learned, you know, certainly camera placement and, you know, just a bunch of different things. Um, uh, be nice to the uh, to the Mexican pyrotechnic crew when they squib you up. <laughs> I learned stuff like that. <laughs> you know that was very important. Um, and uh, so I, I knew I had I had the rudiments of uh, movie acting. I had I had certainly been in a, a number of plays in in high school and college. Right. So I had the general idea, but I had not gone to an acting class. Right. Right. Well even more impressive in that case. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was um, you were in the remake of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, playing yeah. an iconic role. Were you intimidated by that at all? Um, I wasn't really because I was such good friends with Tom Savini. You know, Tom and I had become great pals on, the, on, on uh, Texas Chainsaw 2. 
Right. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the makeup chair because uh, Chop Top makeup was three and a half hours on, an hour and a half off every day. So uh, I had, you know, and I had dubbed uh, the makeup, uh, I, I had dubbed the makeup department the House of Pain. I had gone through a lot of stuff. I was great friends with all the makeup artists. We really had a great, funny time. Um, so Tom was the one who um, sent me a script because he, when he got the job to direct, he sent me the script and said, uh, I want you to pick any part. And so I went through the script and uh, I picked the part of uh, uh, played by Carl Hardman, you know, the guy in the basement and, uh, you know, the bad guy uh, that was played wonderfully in, in uh, the remake by uh, Tom Tolles. And, <clears throat> um, and then I, I said, I want, I want to play that character because that character seemed to have the most pages in the script. And I was thinking in terms of what's going to pay the most. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wish it were as more. we all do. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I get that. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really an artistic choice as much as a financial one. Um, and uh, and so anyway, so Tom said, "Well, pick any part. Just make sure it's Johnny." I was like, "Ah," because I saw that Johnny didn't last very long. Certainly, I knew that from seeing the original ten times. Um, so, um, so then I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be Johnny. And Johnny has to deliver, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara, with a, you know, Boris Karloff accent. Uh, what I, the first thing I did was I went to, uh, went to the tapes and I went to uh, Die, Monster, Die, one of the latest, uh, one of the last movies that Boris Karloff made. Die, Monster, Die with Nick Adams. And, um, uh, you know, it's an H.P. Lovecraft story. It's a great, it's a cool, cool little movie. Uh, but um, I, I played it over and over again. I rented it from, you know, the local video store and played it over and over again. And that's how I got my accent uh, for, uh, for Johnny. So I really wanted to make sure that I, I got that right. Yeah. And I'll come to get you, Barbara. And that's thanks to Die Monster Die. Right. Um, <clears throat> yep. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I, uh, I, I did that. That was actually not... Just a couple of days ago here was uh, Earth Day. And um, mm. let's see, when was that? That was, uh, yeah, just a couple, just, oh, it's the 22nd. Yeah. was Earth Day in the US. And that was the day that we shot my scenes in uh, Washington, Pennsylvania, way back when, 1990, I guess it was. And, uh, you know, loved working with Tom. Um, incidentally, I, I, uh, I wish Tom had had a much, bigger career as a director. I mean, obviously he's the king of splatter and he has a lot of, he's a great actor. There's, you know, he's a wonderful guy. And, um, but I thought he did a great job on, on Night of the Living Dead. A lot of people think that's, you know, that's their favorite remake of, you know, any classic horror movie. So, uh, but I had a lot of fun working with him. Right, 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 right. And we wish him well at the time mm. of recording. Oh yes, that's right. Only a month. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so now the other thing I wanted to ask about is your music career, because you're a singer and mm. had a band, Corn Bugs. And so how did all, so where did all this spring from? I was in a play in, in Los Angeles called Timothy and Charlie, which was um, a play about, um, it was a, based on the historical fact that Timothy Leary and Charles Manson 
were side by side in solitary at San Quentin in 1974, whenever the heck it was. Um, and uh, the playwright, Tim Reel, had, had basically taken that piece of fact, that historical fact, and created this crazy uh, play called Timothy and Charlie, which was basically me and, you know, Timothy Leary and Charles Manson on stage in their cells, kind of talking to each other, kind of arguing their philosophies. You know, Charles Manson going, I took drugs to feel good, doc. And Timothy Leary going, uh, well, I did it, you know, to you know, commune with the gods and understand the wisdom of, you know, mankind. So it was really crazy. And there was also, there was a troupe of Manson dancers that were dancing around. They did some kind of ritual dance to kill Sharon Tate. I mean, just, you know, it was a crazy show. Um, and I got hired as Timothy Leary. Uh, a lot of people, you know, you know, subsequently with Otis, et cetera, et cetera, they think of me as, you know, kind of a Charles Manson character. <clears throat> but I actually, for that, for that, that was the closest I came. I actually was Timothy Leary. And um, uh, the guy, the actor that played uh, Charles Manson was friends with Buckethead, uh, whom I'd never heard of. And uh, anyway, he invited Buckethead. I guess Buckethead found out, the, Buckethead was a big Chop Top fan and, uh, and a big Chainsaw fan. And so Timothy, I mean, so Charles Manson invites Buckethead to come to a performance of Timothy and Charlie. And at the end of the show, Buckethead came backstage and, and uh, Gil Gale, uh, you know, Charles Manson introduced us. And Buckethead said uh, uh, that he was a big fan. I said, thanks, that's great. He said, you know, I'd love to make some music with you. Uh, you know, I have, uh, I'm using a friend's studio down in Santa Monica, not too far from where I live. Uh, and so he invited me to come down. And so I said, great. So I, I drove down, you know, a day or two later. Uh, I brought my bongos and a cup of, uh, you know, I had a cup of uh, McDonald's coffee. And I showed up and uh, Buckethead and I just started jamming. And that was, um, and it really went well. It was a lot of fun. He's an amazing, you know, for my money, the greatest guitar player on the, on the planet. And... Uh, he loved my improvising. Uh, I had a band with my brothers and, uh, you know, growing up. And so I knew how to, you know, just make it up on the spot. Um, and so I just, you know, was making stuff up and he liked it. He Buckethead. And so Buckethead then invited me to New York a couple of weeks later to, um, to be on his album called Giant Robot. And so um, I was very excited. I was thinking, oh, my God, here, here's my rock and roll career. I'm, I'm so ready for it. <laughs> so, and, so, uh, and so Buckethead said, yeah, yeah, we can, uh, you know, because I'd like to do something with Chop Top on my album. And I went, oh, great, great. And so, um, but I remember right before I left for um, uh, New York to fly and to be on this album, how cool is that? I remember calling up a friend of mine from Yale who was now a uh, professor of uh, copyright law <laughs> in Los Angeles. And I just, I called him up, Jay, uh, Jay Doherty. I said, Jay, uh, hey, I'm about to go to, you know, New York, do this Chop Top thing. I, you know, what, what, what do you think in terms of copyright? I mean, I don't own Chop Top, but I am Chop Top. And, and he said, well, you know, from a legal point of view, probably a good idea to come up with a different character. 
And I went, different character. That's chop. That's my, you know, it's my life raft on a, you know, stormy sea of life. And uh, how can I give up chop top? What do you mean? A different character. And so that, that kind of stuck in my head. So I'm flying to New York <clears throat> and I'm thinking different character, different character. And so I started thinking about um, that I would do, uh, you know, I was thinking what kind of different character, different character. Uh, I saw a farm, I saw kind of a farm, uh, you know, an old rickety farm. And then I saw a scarecrow in the, in the cornfield. And then instead of scarecrow, I said scare shoe crow bird. So I came up with this idea of shoe bird, the scarecrow. And then I saw like little hands, like in the, uh, you know, Adams family, you know, and I, I thought of them as ranch hands and these little hands scurrying around and sold dilapidated ranch and shoe bird. And, and um, so I showed up and, uh, and Buckethead had been working hard all day on his album. And he came back to the hotel and, um, and uh, he said, well, you ready to go? And I said, well, yeah, except there's just this one thing. Uh, uh, I can't really do chop top. I can, you know, because uh, of copyright. And I've never seen a, a person's face darken as much as his, his face. You know, he was excited and then it suddenly this eclipse came over it. He just, his face darkened because, you know, this was his great vision was chop top. And for me to say, I couldn't do it, really put him. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm thinking there goes my rock and roll career. I'm just watching it slowly start to fade. And uh, he said, well, you know, he says, well, I got a name. No, no, I think I said, I, I, I pitched him the idea of Schubert and this scarecrow and everything. And he, and he still, his face was still pretty dark. And I'm kind of like, hey, well, honestly, you know, that could be cool. And it wasn't going over too good. And, uh, and then he, and then I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm fucked. And, uh, and he goes, uh, and he said, uh, well, I got a name. And I go, oh, well, what is it? What is it? And he goes, no, no, and I go, oh, no, really, what is it? He goes, no, no, I go, what is it? <laughs> Come on, man, my rock and roll career. And, uh, and he goes, onions. I went, onions? Onions, the scarecrow? And he said, yeah, onions, onions, the scarecrow. And I went, that's cool. Because <laughs> it was such a weird name for a scarecrow. And uh, so that was the basis of it. That, be that began our relationship. And the next day we went into the studio and we did one of the songs on his giant robot album is called Onions Unleashed. But I wanted to spell it instead of U-N-L-E-A-S-H-E-D, I wanted to spell it O-N-L-E-A, Onions Unleashed. And so uh, that became one of the, you know, and I did a couple of other songs on his album. Um, and so, uh, and uh, that was it. Uh, that, that began, and I remember calling him up because I was, that was our project. And then, then I started to do these uh, horror conventions and, I, and everybody had eight by 10 pictures and they were signing their little photographs. So I was thinking, there's gotta be something more to it than, than just these eight by 10s. I mean, let's you know, maybe kind of get some more exciting merch. So I called up Buckethead and I said, look, I'd like to, can we make up some songs or something so I can sell, them, sell cassettes uh, at my table at these conventions? And he said, yeah, sure. So um, I went out to his place outside of Los Angeles and his parents' house. And uh, we went to his rehearsal studio and just started, uh, you know, actually 
because we were goofing around at his house and, and that's where we came up with corn bugs. His mom had a stand of corn and uh, I was, we were goofing around on video and I was wearing a pirate hat and I was goofing around in the, in the corn. And I said, you know, and I, I used the corn ear as like a, as like a microphone. I said, you know, call the cops, call the, call, call, all calling, calling all cars, calling all cars. And I looked down at, at uh, this, this ear of corn and there was a bunch of bugs in it. I went, ooh, corn bugs, corn bugs. And so Buckethead, you know, seized on that. That became, you know, our name, band name. And um, we started to record. We started, we recorded probably a, a over the course of about 10 years. And all of the, we put out probably four or five CDs and DVDs and stuff. And, and I don't think there was ever a single song that we did twice. Like all of them were made up on the spot. Either I had some lyrics or he just started playing stuff and I started, you know, making it up. But it was never, we never did a second take of anything. <laughs> and sometimes you can, you can certainly tell that. But I think a lot of it, a lot of the, the, uh, a lot of the, the, the energy, the power, if you will, of the corn bugs is that it is all spontaneous. So it's coming at you live and, you know, the creative process is on display, let's put it that way. Right, right, right. Now, you mentioned earlier on Otis um, from House of a Thousand Corp Corpses, Corpses, yeah. Yeah. and um, working with Rob Zombie again. Now, that I think is probably one of your other defining characters uh, that you've played. How did that come about? I, I actually, uh, it's Chop Top again. I was invited to uh, MC a horror award show at Universal Studios here in Los Angeles um, back in 99, I guess, October of 99. It was a little show called the Igor Awards, which was an in-house Universal, pat yourself on the back kind of awards, horror award show. And so I was asked to MC it because I was a horror guy. And I was given a little bit of extra money to bring along a makeup artist to make me up as Chop Top, because that was my famous character. And so I, I emceed the show in character as Chop Top wearing kind of a ratty tuxedo. It was outdoors, you know, there was a bunch of folding chairs, not a, not a big production. But one of the award recipients was Rob Zombie. He was gonna get his little demon statue. Actually, I, have, I got one years later. So here's what it looks like. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> that is, beautiful. Yes, that is the Igor Award. <laughs> and uh, just happened to have that. Um, and anyway, so uh, I introduced Rob Zombie. I said, hey, you know, and I brought along my, my then 13-year-old daughter and her friend because they were Rob Zombie fans. They, they had just bought Hillbilly Deluxe and very excited about it. So um, they were in the audience. And I said, and here he is, Rob Zombie. And I didn't really know that much about Rob. And uh, Rob came out on stage and he, and he, like, it, he double took me. And it kind of freaked him out. And he got to the mic and he said, boy, if, if you had told me that Chop Top was going to MC the show, I would have said, you're crazy. And uh, so that began our relationship. Uh, it turns out, you know, because I we went backstage after the show and introduced the girls. So that was good daddy points. And, uh, and uh, I met Rob's, you know, then girlfriend, now wife, Sherry, and his parents were there because he had been nominated for stuff, but never actually won an award. And so, uh, you know, so it was, it was a happy, um, 
happy moment. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, a month later, I got a call from his manager at the time, Andy Gould, asking me if, um, if I wanted to be in Rob's movie, that Rob had just had his script, House of a Thousand Corpses, green-lighted at, at Universal, and would I like to be in it? And I said, yeah, sure. And so, um, you know, I got the script, told to look at Otis. I was thinking, yeah, geez, that's a, that's a big part. And uh, that was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of a relationship that's lasted um, through, you know, last year's uh, Three from Hell, the third in the trilogy of, uh, you know, the Fireflies and the Driftwoods. What, what do you find most fun about working with Rob? Well, because Rob writes his own stuff. So Rob really, and he's a very visual artist, um, uh, so he knows exactly what he's looking for. Uh, he knows exactly what's going on in the scene. He knows what the scene, you know, in context with the overall movie. So he really, you know, he's a very good director. It's like, you feel like a baby being tucked firmly into the crib. You know, babies really like a nice kind of a tight papoose. And, uh, you know, when you're working with Rob, you know, he knows what he's doing. There's no, but he's also very good because if you, you know, as actors, a lot of times we're kind of the, 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 the forward scouts. We can, you know, look into the reality and say, and see, you know, what works, what doesn't, uh, maybe this would help or whatever. Sometimes, you know, and, and with, with Chainsaw too, I was encouraged to do a lot of improvising. <laughs> You know, because the script wasn't completed, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, with Rob, I mean, you know, if you come up with something that works, uh, you know, Rob loves it. And so that's also really good. Sometimes you get writers that just don't even change, you know, a, a conjunction, you know, it's like, okay. And then you become more like, a, you know, kind of a wind up actor. Uh, but with Rob, it's very organic. And if you find something fun, you can run it by him. If it works great. If it doesn't, he'll tell you. And, uh, so you always you always know where you stand in terms of as an actor, and uh, he always knows where you are in terms of uh, and the movie he's got in his head. So that's really cool. And also we have a, we have a lot of the same uh, sensibilities, the same aesthetics. You know, we like the brain that wouldn't die. We like uh, the Three Stooges. We, you know, there's a lot of cultural similarity that really so you end up really kind of speaking the same language and coming from the same kind of a mindset when you approach the job. So that's also very fun. Right, right. Now, you mentioned the fact that you did three of the Firefly movies playing Otis in three different films. I was Actually, four, I'm sorry, four different films. Yes. Which El one of the Super best? Bisto. Say again? El Super Bisto, which is his animated feature. Ah. Um, you know, there's a cameo at the very end of Otis coming into a bar, so. Right. Right, right, right. So I was wondering, do you have a piece of costume or a prop or anything that takes you back? So when you were doing the sequels, was this what, something you looked for to bring back Otis? Not really. I mean, I still have the only thing that I, well, I have my Otis costume from, um, from Devil's Rejects. Uh, I have my tidy whities that I wore in all three movies. So that those are and I still, I just wear them, you know, I just have them. <laughs> uh, it was funny, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, when we were doing Three from Hell, and of course this is, you know, 13, 14 years later after we've done uh, Devil's Reach. 
that's a long time to mm. you know be be away from your character and uh, and so uh, you know I was kind of burdened the idea that okay it's 14 years later Otis has been in jail you know what's happened to Otis's head I mean where is Otis now like emotionally you know psychically um, and so I was I was thinking I, I was overthinking a little bit. And we got on the set of Three From Hell, and it was uh, maybe day one, maybe day two at the most. And I had a, um, I, a kind of a short monologue to deliver. I'm in the back of a prison van. The door is open. There's a bunch of reporters. I'm standing in the back of the prison van, and I'm regaling the, the, the reporters with some kind of a, you know, a short monologue, philosophy, crazy Otis, whatever was going on. And I remember. I started, I started, you know, I heard action. So I start doing my monologue and, uh, and I tripped over a line. And um, so it was cut. Okay, let's try it again. So action. So then I'm saying it again and I trip over the line again, uh, maybe a different line. And so it was cut and, and Rob's like, you know, Bill. And, and I said, give me, give me a second here. So I remember taking, taking, you know, a second I sat down in the prison van by myself. I took a deep breath. And then I heard this voice say, Bill, get out of the way. I got this. And I acknowledged it as Otis. And I realized that what was the problem was um, Bill, the self-conscious Hollywood actor, is you know talking you know getting tripped up on lines uh what's my best side you know all of those self-conscious doubts and distractions that a holly you know that a, any actor is is heir to and um and so i just i took a deep breath i heard that i heard otis say get out of the way i got this i i let it go i got out of the way I got back up, we, we, we uh, you know, said, he said action, the words came trippingly off my tongue. And, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a great time after that. Oh, wow, wow. Now kind of bringing us, you say that it was only 2019 that um, a Three From Hell was released, but what else have you got coming up? Well, uh, yes, uh, Sion Sono, a great Japanese film director, Right up there with Takashi Miike in my in my book, uh, Sion Sono uh, did a movie. Um, we, I just I did a movie with him uh, last year called uh, Prisoners of the Ghost Land. Actually, we did it in, toward the end of uh, 2019. Uh, there was a bit of a COVID delay there in post production, but it's Prisoners of the Ghost Land. It stars uh, Nick Cage. I play the governor, I play the bad guy, um, or a bad guy. And um, we shot it in Japan, uh, November, December of lab 2019. And uh, it premiered this February and at uh, Sundance. And I think like every actor wants to, you know, premiere at Sundance. Oh my God, you get to go to Sundance and, you know, schmooze and get all kinds of jobs and love. and. He maybe even ski if you're a skier. And, uh, and of course, this year, I finally, after, you know, 30 plus years of doing this, I finally make it to, uh, to Sundance and it ends up being, you know, Zoom. <laughs> I'm, sitting in my, I'm sitting in my apartment on, 
you know, Cochrane Avenue. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, anyway, but it's a great movie. Um, it's crazy. It's a crazy mashup between, you know, uh, you know, a Western, American Western and, and ninjas. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in it. Uh, Sion Sono, S-O-N-O. I would definitely check him out. He's got wonderful movies, all of them in Japanese, except for this one. This is his first uh, English speaking movie. Uh, but if you check out uh, Suicide Club, Tokyo Tribe, Tag, um, Cold Fish is my favorite, Anti-Porno, they're amazing movies that he's done. So really honored to work with him, had a great time, loved Japan. And um, I think the movie, the movie did get picked up uh, and it's coming out sometime in the summer. So Prisoners right. of the Ghostland. Prisoners of the Ghostland. So that's the thing. That yep. we, okay. Well, I'll see if I can find a website or something and we'll, we'll, put, we'll put in links. Wonderful. Bill, uh, we're practically at the end of our time. Before I let you go, I would just like to ask you some luggage in the crypt questions. Yes. Which is, what would you take into the afterlife? So if I had to, and it's an unfair question, I get this. Sure. But what film... That's your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what film do you think you'd take with you? Uh, I would take Moby Dick, uh, starring Gregory Peck uh, as Captain Ahab. One of my favorite performances. I, I just love it. I, I love the movie. I, I love the book. That's my favorite book. Ah. Um, and I love Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab. So he is he is my, my dark star. <laughs> because I'm just desperately trying to remember the famous line from Dark Carolina Stab at, you know, the defining moment. In, in I, that. you know, how damn it, Will! <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my favorite line is when he goes, that whale, he tasks me, he heaps me. <laughs> you know, task and heap, wow, what is that? It, I just love, I, I love, you know, I, and, and it was so funny because I think Gregory Peck was like the third or fourth choice and somehow they thought, oh, Gregory Peck, he's too soft to play Captain A. Oh my God, what a great job. So that's that's what I would take with me. And would you choose Moby Dick as your book or is there is there another? I would, I would choose Moby Dick. Okay. I, I, I think it is endlessly fascinating and I've read more than Moby Dick. <laughs> I've read a lot of books, but I do love that so much. Right, yeah. right, right. What about an album? Then Play On by Fleetwood Mac. Ah. Uh, that was back when they were a guitar group, back with the, you know, the Jeremy Spencer, Peter Green days. Ah, right. No, I'm not familiar. I'm obviously familiar with um, the chain and, and changes and and so yeah. that's not one I'm familiar with at all. Okay, yeah. check the, that the good, good old. It was kind of like, you know, kind of like the Doobie Brothers before they added Michael McDonald. I mean, you know, kind of the old old school stuff. Right, uh, right. But uh, Fleetwood Mac used to be, a, you know, just an awesome guitar band. Uh, and then, you know, and then they, then they, then they, you know, evolved. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't yet, so. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Favorite food or drink? And is this a uh, favorite food or drink? Um, I'm gonna have to say uh, banana pancakes and uh, favorite drink. Um, 
one of my fruit smoothies. Ah. Do you have a secret recipe for your fruit smoothies? Uh, no, I just, uh, you know, what I do is I buy pineapples and then just, you know, jam them into the juicer. Um, you know, pineapples, bananas, strawberries, uh, pears sometimes. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's, Whatever's. That's drink. Yeah. Oh, cool. That sounds delicious. And what about a piece of visual art, a painting or a sculpture? Uh, it, what is it? I, I forgot the name of the... It's not the persistence of memory. That's Salvador Dali. It's um, uh, Giorgio de Chirico, and it's the uh, the dark painting with the, the little girl, yeah, like the shadow of the little girl rolling a hoop in the in the street. And that is, I think, that's Giorgio's most famous painting. But I okay. I, I love that. I love that. Right, right, right. It's, I'm not familiar with it. I shall check that one out. Okay. Good old Giorgio. Okay. And all, you know, and also, uh, if we're going for photography, uh, any any train photographs by O. Winston Link. Okay. I love those too. And I, the, well, I have a few of them. Right, and these are steam trains from the old west. They are not right. even the old west. It's more West Virginia coal trains. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, but, but locomotives in the good old days, you know, like right. the 40s and 50s. Yeah. 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 Yes. Black yeah. and white photographs, wonderful stuff. Uh, okay. And what about a luxury? Something else, you know, just a comfort, something that would bring you comfort? Parka lounger. <laughs> Parka lounger. Yep. Yep. I spent far too much of my life looking at reclining seats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Okay, I can I can see you reclining there, reading your book, watching the film. Only reclining, reading yeah. Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drinking a smoothie. <laughs> Bill, thank you so very much. This has been fascinating. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for uh, you know, spending the time with me. I appreciate it. My thanks again to Bill Mosley. I love that story of his father setting the police on his friends and him on Halloween. <laughs> Join me next week for some other great stories. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Music